Welcome to Roll Call, the official Columbia Heights Police Department podcast. I'm Ben Sandell, Communications Coordinator with the City of Columbia Heights. I'm here with Police Chief Lenny Austin and Investigator Tabitha Wood helping me co-host and our special guest, Senior Attorney with uh, Anoka County, Paul Young. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, I wanted to quickly start with um, your take on how do you feel about the show CSI? <laughs> so you're going to start with an easy one. Mm-hmm. Well, from a purely entertainment point of view, while uh, not my necessary uh, cup of tea, I understand it, and it provides entertainment for many folks. Uh, from a professional point of view, I have struggled um, because of the need to reconcile CSA, CSI and its imagery and its messaging and its false technology um, with what people see and bring to the courtroom as jurors or what judges see what victims see, what perpetrators think the system might be like. So I have a very split verdict on on the CSI series of shows. Do you think there's any danger in like those shows being that popular? And then how, because you uh, specialize in a lot of the same subjects that that show covers, but I'm guessing that so much of it is glorified and just unrealistic. And is there anything you want to like set the record straight on? Well, I don't know if we have time for that. Uh, there, there's a lot of things, but but on the on the the positive column, it, it does get people interested, and in, I think about things that happen in their communities or that are possible. So I think that's a good thing. Um, the discussions are positive, but for example, when a crime scene magically has DNA, when there's no realistic expectation that there would be DNA, but the show describes having it, or the ability to get certain information from electronics that reality just doesn't support. These do become challenges because nowadays, uh, even more than when I started 30 years ago, people want to believe what they see because if it's being seen in a in a format on TV or that they believe has some legitimacy, there must be some grain of truth to it. So we professionally call that the CSI effect. And it becomes my responsibility to have to disprove some of those beliefs and demonstrate to a jury, sometimes a judge, victims, witnesses, what the realities of um, the criminal justice system are, the realities of evidence collection, the realities of court process. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's created opportunity for discussion. I'll, I'll certainly give it that. I was going to say, we struggle with that on the street and in investigations as well. So you get called to something and, you know, then people are like, well, can't you take fingerprints? Can't you take DNA for this? Um, you know, they broke into my vehicle and realistically, Maybe there would be something there, but there'd also probably be 10 other people's DNA there as well. And then you have right. the cost of things. I mean, and if we did that on every crime, I mean, every city in this county is having people breaking into their cars every day. I mean, the backlog, I mean, we're already backlogged, so that would just right. be we, we We'd come to a screeching halt, but, but yeah. if it's your car yes. and it's your property... You, you get to be selfish, I think, yes. as a victim, and you get to um, have an expectation of service from, you know, the criminal justice system. But we all know we can't meet that expectation realistically. No one could ever fund it. And and just the realities of, of doing something that, you know, can't produce a useful result is, is, is probably just as harmful as it is to have the belief that you can find it. So um, I, I get that these shows and perspectives put us in challenging situations as the practitioners on the other end. Oh, yeah. And then the I forgot who said it, but somebody at the department, they're like, you know, the best way to put it to people, we can't solve this case in an hour. <laughs> Just, you know, they expect yeah. that. I mean, they see it in an right. hour through the hour-long show. Like, all right, they solved this. That's how quick it is. Why can't you guys do this? 
Yeah, they don't do like the cutting to six months later. Yeah. And they've grown a beard in the yeah, meantime. Or, or coming back from the commercial break, now you have your DNA <laughs> yeah. planning when we yeah. wait months. So, Man, if DNA could come so, back, that would... But it's not even just the CSI shows that you referenced, Ben. I mean, there are there are documentaries. There are these supposedly, you know, realistic shows about the criminal justice system and real cases. But even those shows tend to take some liberties, uh, at least in how they are presented. So even these, you know, shows that are intended to be realistic still leave impressions that I think are false, still leave expectations that, that can't always be had. So... Um, I brought. I use that caption of CSI more broadly to just really talk about some of the misconceptions, misperceptions of the criminal justice system at its broadest level. And you're coming from, can you give us a little bit of your background and, and years of experience uh, in this uh, role? Sure. Well, I've been a prosecutor almost 30 years. In fact, I started in the Anoka County Attorney's Office as a law clerk uh, back in 1992. So my whole career has really been in that office. And when I started, I was given great opportunity, um, great cases, had great mentors, and quickly developed an expertise uh, and interest in child abuse and sexual assault, and really focused my um, energies in those types of cases, along with homicide. And over the years, I've tried uh, just under 80 cases to verdict. In my time, I've managed the Violent Crime Division in the County Attorney's Office. I've managed the entire Criminal Division, so I've seen our work from that perspective. I um, have an academic perspective. I teach undergrad at Hamlin University, and I also teach at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. Um, I do some legislative work for the County Attorneys Association. So I've tried to come at these dilemmas in the criminal justice system, not just from a prosecution perspective, but to understand it a bit more globally. Um, so when we have discussions like this, you may not get what you expect from somebody who's been a 30-year prosecutor. You might, it might look a little different than what you thought. When we talk about the criminal justice system, a lot of people think, when they think of the criminal justice system, they think of police and that's it. And, and, and part of it is because we're the most visible part. But the reality is, um, you know, with the county attorney's office, that's where the rubber meets the road on, 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 on cases. You know, quite frankly, that's where the hard work begins. And especially when we get into um, the larger cases like the crimes of violence, sex crimes, child abuse, um, those cases um, have so many twists and turns, especially nowadays. Um, it's just, it's, um, I, I think uh, sometimes people lose sight of that fact. And I disagree with Lenny on one point. He thinks that, that our job is the toughest. And I always tried to train lawyers and tell them, we read reports in the comfort of our office. The lights are on, tends to be warm and comfortable. We, we need to be understanding of the fact of the work that's going on in the middle of the night in the street under conditions that are far from ideal often. And I always try to make sure that people who do this work appreciate that, that um, it's easy to criticize and throw stones, but it's a much more um, impactful decision to say, how, how do we work together? Because really what we're talking about is what do we do with these cases? How do we get to disposition? How do we define justice once that case hits our office? One of the questions I had, um, you know, you know, body-worn cameras, is it's, that, that is one topic that always gets talked about a lot, but it's a small part of when we talk about technology. Sure. Um, but how has, I mean, you know, I think, you know, I mean, when we started it, I think, um, I think uh, our first squad camera had a VHS tape. But for a little historical perspective, so when I started um, now in the early 90s, 
I don't know if any squads in Anoka County had even squad cam, but you're right. The first ones that did, it would have been literally a VHS in the back and, and one mounted camera that faced one direction out the front. And that was the first time, I think, as we started seeing this development of technology where people who weren't doing the work on the street could begin to understand it. And, and from a broader perspective, then you started seeing the evolution of these shows, Cops, and some of those things. So these were really driving forces that were trying to introduce the public to the work of law enforcement. So we were able to take a lot of that documentation and work with the public defenders and defense attorneys on cases. So if they had a client who was saying that didn't happen or that report is inaccurate, way back when that first squad cam was a way where a place we could go to say, well, let's let's literally look at the tape. And it would resolve many of our conflicts of, of differences of opinion or what happened. So it was beneficial, right? It might not have always gone the way we wanted it. Maybe the report was written, you know, inaccurate from the videotape, but at least it provided some clarity and it often helped move a case in a direction, you know, towards um resolution somehow. But then we had the advent of body camera and how we were going to do that. So now we were getting not just a car, obviously the, each officer was going to have these and the data was going to be stored and the, and the imaging got better and better every generation of these, these uh, pieces of technology. It's important to remember too that the body camera technology wasn't intended to be evidence collection. These devices were intended to protect departments from civil liability, accusations of police misconduct. This notion that they could also capture evidence to be used in a criminal case was just sort of this, you know, interesting, you know, realization after we were capturing data. Now I think that table is, is, is reversed. I would imagine by far body cameras are used in criminal cases for evidence than they are in defending um, police misconduct cases. But that's the origin of, of, of these cameras and when we were originally working with our law enforcement partners, it was how do we do data storage? If it's evidence, do we have to get it all? How do we disclose it? So we were really wrestling too with what to do with all this data. You know, once you have it, that's great, but what do you do with it? But in terms of how it's been useful, just like the video cameras, we can now literally go to the tape and look at what that officer did, what that interaction was, what that traffic stop was about. What did the defendant say or do? Could the officer have seen what she said she saw based on the body camera? And the list goes on and on. They've become incredible tools, almost to the point where we, when we don't have body camera, we almost question everyone's sanity, you know, like, well, how can that be? What happened? Um, but along the way, we stumbled because it developed some interesting conflicts. Not every case is criminal. When you go into a home and it's a, it's a, maybe a mental health call or something like that, we have privacy issues. So we've, we've moved our laws in the right direction to try to understand the power of data and people making and having access to this data. But that piece of technology alone has been incredibly powerful um, in our criminal cases. Um, I, I think of shootings. You know, there was uh, the uh, officer involved shooting here in Columbia Heights, not far from here, a few, a few years ago. Some of these very traumatic, very significant community events are captured on body camera. We may have a difference of perspective as to what it means, what we saw, but at least we're seeing it and we can make decisions on it. And I think that gives us an advantage of trying to be better. Whatever those decisions are gonna be, I've always found the more quality information you have, the better that decision can be. And then I guess another question that we had as well for you kind of was talking about plea agreements. 
And I guess the understanding of why it feels like there's so many plea agreements. Well over 90% of criminal cases are resolved by plea. That's true in the state system and the federal system. Nationwide. Nationwide. So if you want to look at broad numbers, think about, as you suggested, Lenny, we couldn't try over 2,000 felony crimes in Anoka County. That's the truth. No one would dispute that, that fact. But if, even if we don't want to look at that nationally, I, you know, I pulled some money. We have over 2 million felony arrests a year. We have 7.3 million people on some kind of custody status in the United States. 1.5 million people in custody. We have 18,000 different law enforcement agencies in the United States and over 1,800 correctional facilities. 17,000 courthouses between our federal and state partners. 32 million court filings a year, not, not counting another 62 million that are traffic cases. Plea bargains are, in some ways, and some justices have written about this on the U.S. Supreme Court, the criminal justice system. Justice is now defined by a plea bargain. Plea bargaining represents that um, negotiated settlement of the criminal case. And I understand how the media often portrays plea bargaining. It's very um, frequently seen as the defendant getting away with something. The defendant got some kind of bargain. And while that might appear true, it might even be accurate, what it doesn't account for all the other realities of that particular case and the system. So I find it very frustrating when people want to pick on law enforcement, prosecutors, court systems for, oh, the guy got a plea bargain. They're going to just give the guy a deal. I don't think that's a fair discussion until we put it in the context of everything that we're doing. For example, perhaps we're reaching that plea bargain because we have a victim who says that's what they want to do. Maybe we're reaching a plea bargain because some evidence got suppressed. Maybe we're reaching that plea bargain because we couldn't do any better at trial and we want to save those resources for a case where maybe there is a chance at a, at a more enhanced sentence on another case. And is it true that you want that basically the idea is to avoid trial um, whatever possible? You're going to want to have a because you're, you're taking a risk going to trial. Well, well exactly. A, a plea bargain also represents um, less risk. It's less risk for the defendant who, if he or she goes to trial, may get a longer sentence, may get convicted of more charges than what the plea negotiation offers. From the prosecution perspective, you may lose. You might have an acquittal on all or some of the charges. So yes, it certainly does reduce risk for everybody involved, but I'd hate to think that we look at plea bargains as avoidance of trial. I think of plea bargains as a experienced, reasoned pursuit of justice. Now, there are lots of checks and balances that go into a plea bargain. Um, we're checking with the victim. Minnesota law, and in almost every state now, there's, there's laws, victim rights statutes, that talk about how we are to interact and notify victims and discuss plea bargains. As courtesy, office policy, most offices will involve their law enforcement in those discussions, particularly on certain types of cases. So this is not just you know, what some might think of the prosecutor wanted to make sure they got to that tea time, so they pled out that case and moved along with their day. They're much more thoughtful. Um, they also get us to the place where, in my 30 years experience, most victims want to be, and that is sentencing, because that's when the power in the criminal justice system in terms of the courthouse changes. 
The defendant has held a lot of the decision-making up until that point. Do I waive this hearing? Do I plead guilty? Do I go to trial? We're all making sure that the defendant's rights are adhered to, which we should be. Once you get that plea and then you can transition to sentencing, that power shifts. Now the victim for the first time is going to get direct input, direct ability to communicate with the judge how this crime impacted them. And more victims, in my experience, are interested in getting to that point with some certainty rather than having to testify. You know, people from the outside don't understand what it's like to have to testify. And if you are dealing with the worst day of your life, it, it's, it's, I would only ask people to think about what that's going to be like to, to talk about the worst experience in your life in front of a room of strangers. That's why so few cases go to trial is we, I think in my job, especially working with sexual assault victims and child victims, I have to consider that no matter what happens with that trial, what is the impact on that victim of having to answer cross-examination questions? I can object, but the questions will get asked. We also have to understand that a lot of these crimes we're talking about, domestic assault, sexual assault, aren't necessarily strangers. In fact, statistically, it's most often with somebody that, that cared for that person. And think of that trauma of having to now talk about somebody who maybe loved you once or did a lot of good things in your life in a court and talk about those things. Part of my job, in my opinion, is to try to get that case to a place where we can find justice. And if a plea bargain is the path, then, then I will never hesitate to pursue that. If I can't get there and what's something I think is fair, we have a remedy, you know, and it's trial. And how do you navigate just the, that kind of gray area of somebody doing a, um, a plea deal, pleading guilty, even if they feel they're not guilty, they're yeah. just doing it. That's sort of, that's, it's a rough choppy waters. I it don't is. Know if you have any. It is. Well, one of the other misconceptions I believe about plea negotiations um, are that, and this can happen. I, I don't doubt the stories that I've heard about nationally that, that people who, who are truly innocent plead guilty. I can intellectually understand and believe that that has happened. But with that being said, and what I think Minnesota does particularly well is the checks and balance involved in the plea process. Most often these folks are represented by counsel, oftentimes public defenders, sometimes hired counsel of their choice. To plead guilty, you have to go through, in a, in a felony case, in writing, what we call a plea petition, a Rule 15 uh, petition, and then you go through it out loud, on the record, in open court, with your attorney, with the prosecutor, and with the judge. That goes through all of your trial rights. It goes through your plea negotiation. It makes sure that you understand it. It goes through questions about your mental, your physical health, all of these things that we would think should be important when making such a, a critical decision. Then, and only after you acknowledge all of those rights, that you've had time to talk to your lawyer about them, that you are of, of sound mind at that day, only then do we begin to get to the facts of the case. Then the um, defendant, him or herself, admits the facts under questioning that make them guilty. Some judges refer to this as the defendant, in essence, convicting themselves because they have that Fifth Amendment right not to say anything. They're giving that up under oath in order to plead guilty. So there's lots of checks and balances that go into a plea of guilty. This isn't usually done on a rash decision, especially at the felony level. 
could I be convinced that, you know, lower chords, higher volume, are things a little different? Yeah, but that, that's not where I particularly have my most experience. Um, could it be different in different states? Sure. Is it true that some people want to proclaim their, their innocence but still want to plead guilty? Yeah, that happens. And our U.S. Supreme Court has acknowledged that. And that's a case, North Carolina versus Alford. And that's a type of plea that says a defendant can, can still take advantage of whatever plea agreement's being offered and be sentenced without having to admit the facts that make themselves guilty. But they must acknowledge that the evidence the state has is sufficient to prove them guilty if believed by a jury. So again, before you complete an Alford plea, the prosecution makes a proffer. And under Minnesota law, the defendant has to acknowledge that there's substantial evidence to convict him should the jury believe it. And the judge makes an independent finding that based on that proffer, there's sufficient evidence to convict. Is it perfect? I don't know anything in life yet that's perfect. Is the plea process efficient? Yes. Is it effective? Yes. Is there room for improvement? Sure. But when you think of the volume that we handle in criminal courts in this country, the plea process, um, pretty durable. I feel like any one of these topics we could talk for an hour. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you talk about checks and balances. Yeah. The checks and balances actually start with police and the county attorney's office, uh, you know, a lot of times, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are times where, you know, we think we have a, a, a case ready to go for charging and um, either a phone call or a declination letter comes back. And, and it's real simple. It, this is, and, and the letter is, is very clear. This is why this isn't getting charged. And, and so, and, and the reason I bring that up, it's a, it's a very high bar. To, to get a case charged. You know, again, it goes back to the television uh, comments. Um, it, you know, it, it looks easy on TV. It's, it's, it's not. Yeah. And if you look at that charge rate, I, I could imagine I'll just use Tabitha because I'm looking at her and she's across the table. You know, you might get a couple of CDs in a row and get really frustrated. Like, why are these cases denied and, and have a difference of opinion? And that's okay. But sometimes, and I wish I could get to more departments and talk about that, our charge rate is 83%. So while you might have had a bad day or got two denials in a row, just remember we're, we're also servicing 12 or 13 other departments and, and a very high volume. Um, so it's just like anything else. It's the ebb and, and flow when the prosecutor reviews it. You know, is it am I on a, a run with this particular detective or this type of case? So there, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But, but the chief raises a, a good point, and it's not a small point, in my opinion. Um, we have to do right. And that's right by the victim, right by the system, and right by the defendant. And if we can't prove that case and we don't have a good faith basis to believe we can prove it, we can't charge it. We shouldn't charge it. The prosecution ethics um, speak pretty clearly on that. Um, and I think is, is when I teach, you know, one of the ways to get a, a, a heated conversation with the audience is to talk about a heinous crime. Let's talk about a sexual assault. And everybody would think, well, even if it's close, you should charge that person because we hate sex offenders and we hate sexual assault. Now, I can agree with that, right? And if we were sitting having a cocktail right now, we, we, we would have almost no disagreement on what we think should happen. But that's not my job. My job when I get to have the cup of coffee and, you know, the next morning in my desk is to apply the facts to the charging standard. And we would hate to have in my mind, a moving target on a charging standard for crimes that we dislike more than others. 
because I think as a society, we, we could all envision how we get to a dark place real, real fast on how we're going to pick and choose who we're going to take chances on or risk on. So, so we don't do it lightly and, and hopefully it's not taken as, as, a, as a light decision. It, it is simply a reflection on what our experience tells us we, we can prove in court or not. It's, it gets more complicated when you're talking about juveniles. Right. How do you approach uh, prosecution and advocacy of, of um, in the criminal justice system when you're dealing with kids, essentially? Yeah, well, um, I think we've improved our understanding of um, kids. They're not just little adults. We understand that there are lots of differences with how kids develop. They develop at different times. And, and while I don't practice now as nearly as much in the juvenile area, I still handle cases where kids come to us from the juvenile system. I have spent some time um, in the juvenile division when I work child protection um, cases that overlap with criminal cases with child abuse. So I, I understand that. Our juvenile division uh, had over 1,100 referrals um, in 2021. But there are more options in juvenile court, and that's a good thing. Diversion type programs, other ways that the community can contribute to get and help so that we can do what's right for the um, juvenile um, and hope that they become um, an improved person moving forward. Um, rehabilitation is the purpose of juvenile court, and those decisions are going to be made in the best interest of the child. Now, can it be frustrating for, for victims because they maybe have a different sense of justice? Maybe so. Um, I would defer to others who practice in that area more frequently, but we, we need to understand why is a person committing a crime, both in adult court and also a juvenile? Are there things that we can be doing around that person's life and decision-making that we can improve that will um, have an impact and prevent the next criminal thought? That's the goal, right? We don't wanna have recidivism. That's our goal in any jurisdiction is to say, you did something wrong, we need to fix this because we don't want to have it happen again. And in juvenile court, it, it, it's a much more visible process when you see that perhaps in an adult court. Okay. Why did you get into this prosecution? What made you want to do this? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> when I think back, I really always thought I would be a defense lawyer. And the first work I did in law school was actually with the state public defender's office. And, and I found it really rewarding. And, and one of the, the mentors that I had at that time challenged me quite literally and said, we need good prosecutors. And he's an esteemed criminal defense lawyer. And he challenged me with the opportunity. He said, go be a good conscientious prosecutor. And, and I was hooked. I mean, it was like crack to me. I mean, I was in there, I was in court and you're seeing this front row seat to humanity, the, the craziness of a criminal courtroom and people coming in and I, I just, for a person who thinks human beings are, you know, interesting and annoying at the same time on any given day, I, I was just like, this is a front, this is it. Where else do you get that? And I just thought it, it, it was just overwhelming to me that I was going to get an opportunity to, to do that and plus be an advocate and, and do all of those things. And, and so the notion that I thought I was going to be a prosecutor, you know, for years and years before I ever did it, um, just wasn't my path. Um, I'm glad I was challenged. And now here we are 30 years later and I'm still there. So the, di the dynamics of any given day still to me is, is, is just exhilarating. You never know what those reports are going to say, what somebody's conduct was, what new excuse or explanation or event that you could never have imagined human beings being capable of. Just sit tight. You'll read about it soon. <laughs> Do you encourage people to go into the field? 
Absolutely. We need to do better. We need new young minds and people doing it, whether it's corrections work, defense work, prosecution, law enforcement. Incredibly rewarding and challenging. And, and I think if those are things that you value, this is the field. And, and, and nowadays, more than ever, you can, you can have very um, different views of the criminal justice system from a person sitting next to you and both go and be great at it. Because at the end of the day, I think the values are the same. <laughs> so, so I think that's overlooked is, you know, we all think we have to be on one side and, and, and all be in this box or that box. And, and boy, I'll tell you, um, that's just too short-sighted to me. I, th I think that you can have multiple opinions about your profession um, and, and still be passionate about doing good work and yet want to see improvement. Absolutely. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, I just want to thank uh, Chief Lenny Austin and Investigator Tabitha Wood and on sound, Will Rotler and senior attorney with uh, Anoka County, Paul Young, our special guest. Thank you all. And this is Roll Call signing out. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank great you. questions. Yeah, Thank great you. questions. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. And you're, you're right, Ben. Any one of these is a whole, a whole topic. <laughs> or, or, I know I'm right here.